Welcome back to the Health Science Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Box. Quick thanks to Chase Drew for the intro music. Chase is a good friend and London musician. You can find all his stuff on whatever streaming platform you used. So mm-hmm. uh, give the man some support. He'd like that. Yes. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Zachary Hunter. Zach, how are you today? I'm doing good. We're standing up, so getting, yeah. getting all loose. This is good. I mean, I'm in kinesiology. Everybody always says about standing desks. I finally got one. Now we can stand up and do this stuff and <laughs> get a little bit of blood flow back to our legs. Exactly. <laughs> so um, Zach's also the host of the Fiscal Frisk. Uh, you can check out his podcast on all the streaming platforms, Tuesdays and Thursdays. His episodes will be airing. If you want to mm-hmm. learn about fiscal and monetary policy, he's a good source for that stuff. Yes, sir. If you're new to the podcast, what we're going to do today is we're going to take a research paper in the field of health science. We're going to break it down and make it really simple because there's a lot of crazy terms and stuff out there. And then uh, kind of at the end, we'll do an example of what that means to you and what the big takeaways of that paper are. So mm-hmm. today, uh, if you've seen some previous episodes... We've covered stuff that is, I guess, a little bit more directly um, health science. The outcomes are talking about just health. This is a little bit more traditional science, which is some more confusing terms. But the the implications of this research are usually what they use to build on, you know, future research that's more directly relatable to your health. But we still need to understand the human body. So this is more about understanding uh, the spinal cord, the brain, and, and how your nerves work in this case. All so, important stuff. So I'm going to do uh, hopefully a really good job of explaining this. I've come up with some really good examples because there are some terms you have to define and we can try to paint a big picture. And by the end, it should be absolutely beautiful. So okay. the paper today, uh, the title is The Operant Conditioning of a Spinal Reflex Can Improve Locomotion After Spinal Cord Injury in Humans. So quite a mouthful yeah. right off the bat. There's, yes, some terms, there's some terms in the, uh, in the title that are a little bit confusing, but the yeah. simple version of that is, can we somehow train people to conscious, consciously improve a body reflex and can that help people walk? Okay. So that, that's, that's basically it without all the fluff on it. Okay. Operant conditioning is a term that's mentioned in the title. This is kind of a fancy version of like training someone or something to do something. Okay. The two most popular types of conditioning are known as classical conditioning and then operant conditioning. Okay. Classical involves training someone to associate an involuntary response with some sort of signal. And was there anything that kind of might come into mind? An involuntary response. You you might feel a certain way when you hear something or see something, even smell something. Yeah. Well... It would be like, like it would be like hearing like a song and it takes you back to like a certain memory that you once had or it takes you back to that, yeah. like a certain place, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of like the, the best example I would give is that if you smell something like a home cooked meal, yeah, you, you, get, you get memories or maybe you get hungry. Like there's some response, some bodily response to mm-hmm. a, a stimulus. In that case, it's something you smell that, that you don't necessarily have to think about. And that's why we say it's involuntary, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it just takes you there. And this is kind of the main difference that we'll say versus operant conditioning. Operant conditioning is a little more advanced. So this involves feedback regarding a voluntary behavior. Okay. So it's not just simple association. It actually involves both rewards and punishments for certain behaviors. Got it. And this is something you do with your dog, right? Yeah, exactly. And they say this both positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, right? Mm -hmm. You got to do 
you got to give your dog praise when it does something well. Yeah. But also sometimes punish your dog or make your dog realize that, hey, you're not supposed to go to the bathroom here. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and over time, they know what to do and what not to do. They've been operantly conditioned to behave in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what they use here is kind of a sophisticated method of operant conditioning, and it has to do with giving feedback about a body reflex. So the reflex is actually the behavior in this case. Okay. So operant conditioning is the conscious control over things, which is odd given that we're trying to change a reflex. Yeah. Right. So now Zach, answer me this. Do you think a reflex involves the brain or, or do they just kind of happen? I think it involves the brain like involuntary though. Like when, because like when you reflect, like when you uh, have like a reflex, like, like can you, you have change to, it? like can you consciously just be like i don't want this reflex to happen to a, a certain extent i think you can okay interesting i just feel like you know when like you got when you see it it's like when you go to the doctor right and like they try to hit your knee and like sometimes like you can like if you let it flow and you can see it sometimes it's easier for that reflex to happen but like you can use your brain to kind of not force that reflex to a certain extent, but like in that case, yeah. you would just be like tensing up your muscles to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, that's why I just mean to an extent. Yeah. So like, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is the pathway that the reflex would take um, through our kind of traditional understanding doesn't involve it at all. Okay. If it's a movement like that, yeah, you could you could um, flex your arm or your leg and, and not have that happen. But mm -hmm. I mean, like the other example I get to later is with, with say if you touch something hot, like you don't think it's hot you touch it, you, you pull your hand back you go wow that was hot and you realize it after the fact yeah without you've already folded your you hand already, back right yeah. so you don't consciously think of it yeah no yeah i get that so yeah this this is the thing is and i want to define those really clearly so you and i might have an understanding of, of reflexes so the first one you mentioned there is if you go to the doctors and if they tap your knee just in the right spot underneath uh underneath your kneecap you're going to get a little kick out of your foot, right? And that's how they check that your, your reflexes are good because that means your your, your circuitry is fine, yeah. right? If you have a spinal disease or something going on with your nerves and your limbs, that's not going to work very well. No. So in this case, what's happening is when the doctor taps, uh, it's called the patellar ligament. It's underneath, uh, well, some people call it the patellar tendon, but mm -hmm. by science definition, it's a ligament, so we'll call it here. Okay. <laughs> so they tap that, and that actually just stretches your your quad muscle really quick okay and the, your muscle has stretch receptors in them so the stretch receptors are really important for giving your brain feedback as to what's going on with your muscles what direction are they moving right so if yeah. you're holding a weight and all of a sudden i drop more weight your muscles are going to stretch yeah exactly and, and your 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 body your brain knows that mm -hmm. you don't have to physically look at your limbs to know wow i've got more weight on my on my limbs right now yeah. you react you to it automatically it. Yeah. yeah and that's how you feel it so those are going to get stretched really quick and they're going to send a signal uh, right back to the to the spinal cord. Yeah. And it has enough juice in it to say to your motor nerve, which controls your muscles, hey, fire, quick, bang, yeah. on a little twitch. And that's when you get that little little kick from your leg because your your quad muscles contract in a response to that. Yeah. It's, it's like the signal and then the signal going back. Exactly. So then, and this happens all without the brain not being involved, right? Yeah. Because evolutionarily, it's it's when it's a really simple response to say just like tensing up your muscle, you don't really have to like interpret it. There's no, it doesn't matter what the reason your muscle's getting stretched, it's just getting stretched, you need to respond to it. Yeah. So in, in cases like this, the initial reflex 
uh, you don't need to involve the brain at all because that's not a complex, you don't have to interpret it or anything like that. So it can happen yep. a lot faster. If you think about the distance, it just has to travel from your leg back to your spine, mm -hmm. uh, where the root is, and then psh, back out. Mm -hmm. Instead of going all the way up to your brain, processing that information, then going all the way back down, you probably cut off, and I don't know the exact numbers, but you could cut it in half at least the time to respond to that. Which that's crazy to think about, like not having to, like you don't necessarily need that brain. That well, and goes. then your brain knows it, and yeah. it gets the signal, but it's after. So that reflex has already happened. And that's why I say with, say, the, the withdrawal reflexes, when I brought up is if you touch something hot or you touch something sharp or you get bitten or something mm. and all of a sudden bang, you just well, kind of pull your yeah, hands all after the fact right and you don't even think about it you just yeah. you're out of there yep. really quick and and then after you go oh that was hot or is that and then the interpretation comes after so the reflex itself happens really fast mm -hmm. uh, without the brain and the initial response and it's the same thing it's just except of stretch receptors it's just going to be pain receptors so it's just a different type of nerve yeah that's going to be setting that signal but it's the same signal and it achieves the same thing right and it works the same way then pain as the other yeah yeah in if it goes back those those are the really typical ones there's a lot more uh, complex ones got it we'll talk about one that we use in science here which i'll explain really clearly okay so now let's go back and we'll talk about the study design and then we can kind of reapproach the understanding once we know what they're doing in the in the study itself and then we'll have we'll, we'll paint a clear picture there. So who are we who are we studying? Uh, I mentioned it briefly in the title. So it's going to involve people that suffered a spinal cord injury between 8 months and 50 years prior. Okay. I believe the only reason they did 8 months is that if you were anything less than that, either it might have been a little too soon. Yeah, because the other inclusion criteria that was really important is they want to measure their reflexes, but then they're going to see, can that help people walk? So there are certain mm -hmm. people that maybe if their spinal cord injury is, is really recent, um, they're not going to be as mobile. So they wanted to just make sure that everybody that was being involved had, I would say, got used to living with that injury yeah, rather than just it being the initial shock. Cause there's, there's a lot of adjustment that would have to go on. Oh, for sure. And it's a pretty wide range, so eight months to five years. So under a year, all the way up to 50 years, is you, you could a have it your whole, your whole life, basically. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> now, there are other inclusion criteria, but like those aren't really terribly important for the implications. They're more just to control the study and make sure that what we're learning is is not... like We're controlling for those other factors. We talked about in other papers where... You want to make sure your sample has, you know, men and women in it. They yeah. have different ages, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. they summarize that, but uh, not too important here. Yeah. Now, the reflex they're measuring here is called the soleus H reflex. H is in the letter H. Got it. Soleus is just one of your calf muscles. That's all you basically have to know for this, right? Okay. You have calf your, your gastrox and your soleus. Those are just two muscles that are on the back of your lower leg. Yeah. They help you do little calf raises and... The soleus attaches a little bit different, so it's its own unique muscle, okay. and it's just really easy to study. So that's why they're doing it with this muscle in particular, and it has to do with your your walking function. Yeah, I was going to say, like, is that an important function in learning how to walk? Yeah, in this case, you'll that. see. So a lot of the times when they study soleus, it's just because it's easy to study. Mm -hmm. In this case, they are using it because they want to see how it affects walking later. Okay, got it. And, and we'll get to that. Okay. <clears throat> so remember back to the doctor's office when they tap your knee mm -hmm. this is the same pathway okay instead of getting the the stretch receptors 
We're just going to use electricity. That's it. So we're, we're going to just zap the nerve instead of um, causing a little stretch. Yeah. And the reason they do that is it's just more accurate, right? You can get a really more, a much more controlled response. Yeah. Because when you're, I mean, let you think if you are in the doctor's office and, you know, transport that scenario into research, you take your little hammer and you hit the, the, the ligament below the knee. There's no guarantee that you're going to hit that in the exact same spot. Yeah, exactly. With this, you're, be pretty you're damn giving accurate. the exact same amount of stimulus yeah. every single time. Yeah. And that's why they do it there. But it's the same thing. So you're going to get a little muscle twitch out of it. And then you can measure how big that muscle twitch is. Yeah. So what is the spinal reef or the H reflex most often used? It's used to measure spinal excitability. Again, back to our pathway. We said that the signal from say your leg or your arm, whatever reflex we're talking about, we'll say the leg in this case, because okay. we got our H reflex. Yep. It's going to go racing back to the spine. And then in the spine, it's going to say, hey, let's let's move your leg. Yeah. Now, just based off of those terms, have I told you that maybe your spinal excitability was really low? Do you think that the spine would react as big if it got a little signal from the leg? So if it was as low. So if spinal excitability is really low, yeah. I send a signal from the nerve in this case. Mm -hmm. And then the job of the spine is to take that signal and cause a muscle twitch. I'd probably say no. Exactly. So the spine actually acts as kind of a gateway. Yeah. So if the spinal excitability is really low, it's either not going to react or not going to react as much. So then that muscle yeah. twitch will be smaller or just not existent at all. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, there's a gap there between the sensory nerve and then the, the spinal nerve that has to take that information and then send it to your muscles. Mm -hmm. Right. And if, if the spinal excitability is really low or really high, it can change the response. Yeah. That was exactly my thought thinking. Now the research paper says they break people into control and conditioning groups mm -hmm. and in research, you're always going to have a control group. Well, I was, I would caution that in, in research where, uh, you are manipulating things, you'll have a control group. And just define to the people what a control group is. Yeah, yeah. So like a control group is basically just people who get nothing. Like they're just there. So in this case, they're going to show up. They're a part of the same uh, demographic as the people that we're testing things on. Yeah. They're going to look at the computer screens. They're going to, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and they're going to do the same thing. You know, in the case of say like a, a drug, they're going to try using a, a drug trial to see if something works. They'll usually use a placebo, which yeah. is actually a pill that's just got sugar in it or something. Exactly. So people will take it thinking they're doing the exact same thing. So you isolate the effects of the drug and it has nothing to do with, maybe it's anxiety Yeah. and you're testing anxiety drug and people get relief just from coming to the doctors. Yep. So you could give them a sugar pill and they're going to feel a little bit of relief Yeah. and you can parse out those effects between is it the drug that I'm giving them or is it just the fact that they're coming to get a drug? Yeah. Well, and, and that then that was it. the thing I wanted you to highlight about the control is just um, the main part of it is just to isolate. And then you can actually like isolate the differences between uh, like the control group and like your actual study group. Yep. And the reason we haven't mentioned it before is with the other two studies have been observational. So we're just kind of looking at the data Yeah. Where after they had occurred. Exactly. Where this is more. We've got them in the lab. Right? Yeah. 
So they're going to come in and run through the same routines. And the only thing they don't get is that specific intervention. In our case, the intervention is that conditioning protocol. Again, okay. it's operant. Yeah, we're going, to be giving, gonna... we're going to be giving feedback based on this H reflex. Okay. Uh, so we've got, yeah, recap again quick. We mm -hmm. define conditioning. Yes. That's our intervention. H yep. reflex, which is essentially our outcome. Yes. And then we're going to try to use that conditioning to change the H reflex, which again is kind of weird because we described the pathway. It doesn't involve the brain until after. Okay. But can we change that? And that's what we're looking at. Yeah. Now the operant conditioning gives the people feedback with regards to how high their spinal excitability is. So they're going to measure it and then they just display it on a screen and they've got this little range. They say their task is to be given that they, they want to decrease it to a specific range. Okay. And they're not told how to do this or what to do or anything. They're just saying, we want this to be here. Try. Mm -hmm. And it said in the paper, most people reported after the fact that they would come up with some sort of strategy and that doesn't, it, it could be anything. Yeah. They're just, they're just thinking about it. They're just looking at it and saying, okay, here's my spinal excitability of my leg. Mm -hmm. Just think about it. Try to get it lower. Yeah. And then the people in the control group just looked at a screen and got feedback. They yeah. weren't told anything. They're not conditioned to do anything. They're just yep. saying, here's your spinal reflex. Got it. And then they had them back for three sessions a week for, I believe it was roughly 10 weeks. So they've done this training protocol for quite a while. Yeah. So three, 10. Got it. So what happened in this then? So the conditioning group, they were actually able to see a significant decrease in the size of the H reflex after all the training. So people were able to decrease it. And when they measured them at follow-up, they didn't have any conditioning. So they said, here, we'll train you. We'll give you feedback. Mm -hmm. Try to get it below a certain point. And then when they come back, they just measure it. They don't give them any feedback. And on average, the people that had done the training to decrease it, all their values were lower. I think there was one or two people in the study that didn't actually react to it. And then they followed them. I think they said it was... Uh, one month, three months after, and they wanted to see had this effect actually stayed around. Yeah. And they said reductions were as great as 58% three months after the training had ended. So that's pretty significant, 58%. Yeah, reduction so they, they, they cut that H reflex down. And then yeah. like the thing is saying, okay, well, you can affect the reflex, sure. That doesn't end there. They yeah. followed up with the locomotion tests, which is just fancy word for walking, right? Yep. They found on average there was an increase in walking speed just under 60%. Okay. So if you're somebody with a spinal cord injury, maybe moving around is really challenging for you. Yeah. If you could increase that by looking at a computer screen and training a reflex and then get 60% faster walking speed, you're much more mobile. That's that's important for, for people getting around for living their lives, right? Yeah, exactly. And then they also did some measures, and I didn't get into the details of this. It's called gait symmetry. Okay. So this is just having somebody walk in a room where they can look at all their joint angles. Yeah. And that also improved, which if your gait is symmetrical, that's a good thing, mm -hmm. right? If, if one leg, a uh, very common spinal cord injury, I believe is, is like an ankle drop. Okay. So their foot, they'll kind of drag, drag a toe on the ground because they can't lift their toe up. It's good. Got it. Right. If one foot's doing that or, or your, your joint angles are out of whack, you're not going to be as efficient at walking. Yep. Nice and symmetrical. That's a good thing. And isn't that pretty crazy? Like it, it's, it's, we've, we've looked at a, a H reflex yeah. and we, we explained what this was. This is just how, how excitable is this little uh, body of cells in your spine? Well, it's like literally a mini brain. Like, yeah. And, and it, that's if we can change cool. it, 
now it's now it's like you can walk better and for people people with spinal cord injuries that yeah. 60% that 60% increase in, in speed yeah. might give you the power to 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 get upstairs more often might give you the power exactly. to to be more independent right yeah like 60% like that's a that's a a, a big increase yeah so yeah, I, I want to summarize then. What are kind of the two main takeaways for kind of the average person? Because not everybody has a, a spinal cord injury, right? No. It, number one, or A, spinal cord injury rehabilitation is really complex. Oh, yeah. It, it <laughs> right? Is this, very... is, this is something where they've necessarily uh, been doing a training regimen and have been able to increase their ability to walk. Whereas if we didn't research this kind of stuff you never could have convinced me that you could look at a spinal cord reflex and give feedback and all of a sudden you walk better. Like yeah. that's, that seems outlandish to me. Well, exactly. And a lot of people don't even know that exists, right? That like even your spine gives that feedback yeah. that has that correlation even between walking. Cause you would just assume, you know, with your brain, your brain is the one place where the signals all go. So you yeah. just generally assume that like, Oh, your brain will help you walk better, but you don't even need that brain to increase 60% walking speed. And like, well, I'd say that you, you use your brain to train it, but after that point, it sticks around and that the spinal cord is not just a cable that transmits those signals. It, yeah. it can change and mold depending on your situation, depending on the type of training you do. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they use their brain to train it, but yeah, it stuck around regardless of the brain after the fact, right? Yeah. Now, if you'd saw this summary in the news for a minute or so, they would have said something like, you know, you can strap yourself into a computer and, you know, fix your spinal cord injury, which is technically not untrue. Like that's all they did is they, they got feedback with some sophisticated you know, no. equipment. But, you know, if you read into it like we did today, you still see amazing effects, but they're put into much more realistic proportions. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. You're not a computer is not going to fix your spine. No, not at all. But it, it, it does have some truth in that you can can rehab it. But. Yeah. That's that's uh, you know important point of why you know we do this show is that looking at it the way we are today, mm -hmm. those realistic proportions are are really important, and that still doesn't limit us. We can still see amazing things. Yeah, we just can't make crazy statements about yeah. uh, treatments or about well, and that's what everyone wants to do, right? Is make those crazy life all. Well, if you straight gold, right? You yeah. want to be like, oh, you know, we can fix this, and bang, you know, you make a lot of money, or you you have a drug that yeah. you you sell and, and that's that's a dream for a lot of people and, and even even not if it has anything to do with money right if you're in research for a long time you have a career mm -hmm. of course like if you could just say that yo i'm i'm devin and i fixed this then yeah. all of a sudden wow you found the cure for whatever disease so yeah. sometimes you can have stuff twisted and even you got to think of the media as well yeah. if, if we if we sent this to the media and say hey this is cool they'd be like yeah that's neat but like those numbers don't make but sense they have to, to sell it but then if, yeah, if they want to sell it to people and, and say, this is crazy, this is something that's newsworthy, yeah. it might look a lot different when it got to that point. So the other takeaway is this, you can affect the reflexes with your brain. Now, this is interesting to me because the brain and spinal, spinal cord are, and our understanding of the brain and spinal cord is constantly evolving, Yes, right? We're learning new things every day. Oh, for sure. And this proves, in this study in particular, that we can actually think about a reflex and change the spinal excitability. And you had mentioned earlier, like, okay, I could affect a reflex by maybe tensing up or doing something. Yeah. But you, you never thought in your brain, I'm going to change my spinal reflexes, yeah. right? Like, that's not something that you're like, oh, I have control over. Yeah. And we could do that with our minds. And it took a lot of training to get to that point. But for people in this group, 
that that 60% might be really important. Mm-hmm. Now, to most people, this might not mean a whole ton, but I wanted to share this paper, you know, kind of for the sake of of showing how, you know, new research can dramatically change our understanding of the human body. And, mm-hmm. you know, importantly, especially when it relates to the brain and spinal cord, yeah. right? This is stuff that is so complex that we... We can't just say we know everything about it. Yeah, no, for sure. And we've got the be-all, end-all treatment or whatever it is. We, we don't know that because we're learning such amazing stuff yeah. every day. So definitely do your homework. You know, whenever you hear studies relating to like brain or spinal cord or nerve health, because there is so much stuff out there that would like blow your mind and, and mm-hmm. we could cover it in podcasts, but I think... A lot of that stuff is really basic science and it's not necessarily immediately impactful to people's health. But it could be. Like and I it, like it could just, be. Yeah, yeah. And like that's what I wanted to highlight is like the hypotheticals here. Like, yeah, right now it only might be relevant to people with spinal injuries. But I wonder if there'll be a day that this might be relevant for say someone with uh, like a very high caliber athlete. So instead you're able like you're training your back and like the, the like the spinal to give like those nerves and maybe it will actually help your athletic ability. Yeah. Or, like, I mean, that's your next that's, levels, right? You could, you could consciously change reflex and it might improve performance and, and yeah, running long distances, lifting heavy weights. You never know. Right. Yeah. You never know where this stuff can take us. Exactly. So I think this is new. a, yeah. So I think this is a really cool study in the sense to, this is just like, kind of like we're just scraping the surface of this mm-hmm. and who knows like further down the line. Cause like if you can use your spinal, and your brain coherently and like they work together like who knows what this will do for research and studies moving forward yeah and yeah that, that's pretty yeah, that's probably a good way good uh good spot to end so as always thank you very much to my co-host zach check out the fiscal frisk tuesdays and thursdays new episodes airing in the mornings if you want to learn about fiscal and monetary policy so for zach and for myself stay happy and healthy and we'll see you next time on the health science podcast